0: This episode of The Jewish Views is dedicated to the memory of Maureen Kendler. The Jewish Views on the multi-school academy set to revolutionize the way Jewish education is taught, the pictures of the East End as you've never seen it before, as captured by photographer David Granick, and remembering Maureen Kendler, her colleagues pay tribute to an extraordinary and prolific educator the community has lost.
1: But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. In an historic first, three North London Jewish primary schools, which together have almost a thousand pupils, are to link up to form an academy. It means learning resources and teaching expertise will be combined, while there will be the benefit as well of cost efficiencies. Moriah Jewish Day School, Saxe Morasha and Wolfson Hillel Primary Schools will together form a multi-academy trust. The trustees will be chosen by the Chief Rabbi and other United Synagogue leaders. Southend and Westcliff Synagogue has suspended an unregistered school operating on its premises after video footage showed a Haredi teacher striking a young child. The Board of Deputies has said it's deeply concerned after the BBC footage surfaced, which was apparently shot from an adjacent building. There are a number of unregistered schools in Haredi communities, but the law allows it if the number of hours of teaching is less than 18. One of the most active Jewish social media accounts which attacks anti-Semitism in the Labour Party has been suspended by Twitter for allegedly breaching its rules. Nasha Jew, which describes itself as a group of former Labour Party members, has only been registered on Twitter for a year. The row is apparently focused on Nasha Jew's use of a yellow star as its image, as worn by persecuted Jews during the Holocaust. Twitter apparently deems that to be hateful imagery. Rabbis in the UK are apparently preparing to comment on a new ceremony called a Brit Shalom, which is gaining ground here after starting in America. It's for those parents who don't like the idea of circumcising their newborn boy and could be of special interest to interfaith couples. It's basically a naming ceremony welcoming a child into the Jewish faith in what is being called a more peaceful way without the actual bris. And finally, a previously unheard demo track by the late Amy Winehouse has been released online. Composer Gil Kang, who co-wrote the song called My Own Way, posted it on YouTube. It was sung by Amy when she was only 17 and just starting out in the pop world. That's the news. Andrew has the sports headlines.
2: Thank you, Viv. Diego Schwarzman became the first Jewish tennis player to break into the world's top 20 rankings for nearly 30 years after winning the Rio Open. In claiming his second career title, the 25-year-old Argentinian moved up to 18th in the world, leapfrogging Andy Murray in the process. Eren Zahavi has signed the richest contract in Israeli sports history after extending his contract at Chinese football club Gangju RNF. The striker, who retired from international football having been booed off the pitch by Israeli supporters last year, is set to earn a minimum of £7.2 million per season. And finally, Israel has announced it will play Argentina in a prestigious friendly football match. The South Americans are using the game as a final warm-up for the World Cup and hope it will be a case of third time lucky, having reached the final on the previous two occasions they played the Israelis ahead of the tournament. Don't forget you can catch up on all the latest Jewish
0: sports at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Hello there and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave and let's start off, as we usually do, with a little look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Andrew hasn't gone anywhere because he joins us to review the paper, as does editor Richard Ferrer. Welcome to you both. And let us start off with not one, not two, but three school stories. And the headline reads, Schools Unite in Milestone for Jewish Education. Mm, Three stories, a
3: hat-trick of Jewish education stories, each with big significant national impact. We just did our school awards a couple of weeks ago, so we know how prominent and important education is to our readers and to our community well our splash says schools unite in a milestone for jewish education this is a new multi-academy trust that is going to connect three of our main primary schools in the community mariah jewish day school sax marasha and wolfson hillel they're going to share best practice they're going to share expertise they're going to make cost savings it's a great opportunity to spread the knowledge and help each rather than each going individually along their own path these sort of shared expertise and not a merger as such they'll stay as independent as as they ever were but it's an opportunity for them to, to build on the backs of each other so that's a good news story and that's made our front page this
0: week and indeed we will be finding out a little more about that when we speak to michael goldstein of the united synagogue in just a moment's time on this program as he'll tell us hopefully more about the multi-school
3: project. Yeah, the, the multi-academy I think will be rolled out widely across the country. It's the first time it's happened for the Jewish community, so I think other schools will certainly be looking on with interest. Bad news, and I think a lot of our listeners would have already heard about this, the BBC had some recording of a unregistered school in Southend, Essex, and it has been suspended by its host synagogue after footage emerged of a Haredi teacher striking a pupil at the school it subsequently turns out although this hasn't been confirmed that the teacher was actually striking a pupil that was his son but of course that doesn't Make a great difference in the context of an environment of a a school, and it would send a shiver down the spine, I think, of any parent who thought that their their child was in in that environment. So that's on page two. Not a great school story, but can we
0: just clarify whether or not that has that school in question made any comment or been contacted or anything like that? So, because obviously, we know that this was footage obtained, as you say, by the BBC. So I know that this is not necessarily Jewish news revealing it, we're just reporting it. But do we know if there's any comment that's been made by the school? The only
3: comment from west cliff and south end congregation is that they are going to take legal advice as to whether the bbc was snooping so in terms of privacy they're a little bit upset but the host synagogue has suspended it currently and that's still pending okay so we'll look into that as it carries on and then there's a third school story There is another negative story, and this is a bizarre one. There's an organisation called the National Association for Jewish Orthodox Schools. Now, this is above the the United Synagogue. This is the the Strictly Orthodox. They are none too happy about uh, the current climate with Ofsted, school inspection, school standards, insisting that secular studies are front and centre on the curriculum. So they put together this bizarre video basically attacking a lot of our community allies, Michael Gove, is probably the main person that's come out quite badly on this it's overlaid with the most bizarre sinister music very dramatic that leaves you in no doubt as to their anger at uh, Mr Gove and others and and it shows Mr Gove talking about failing schools increased inspections in parliament why Jewish schools need to be monitored etc well since then this organisation has been suspended as well the wider strictly orthodox community have completely distanced themselves from it it seems to be a very ill thought out thing to have done. And they've alienated the people who they really should have been encouraging and promoting. It's a, a massive own goal in terms of strictly orthodox education. So three stories there, each important, each
0: Jewish, but with a national impact too. Quite extraordinary. Okay, well, it's obviously a good and bad week for schools and for the news. But let's have a look at some of the other stories that are making the paper. And on page six, Twitter accounts been suspended. That is to do with an account on Twitter that is key in trying to tackle alleged anti-Semitism has been suspended. Why is this?
2: Well, the account in question, Phil, is called Nasha Jew. They describe itself as a group of Jewish ex-Labor
0: party members,
2: and they have now had their account banned over the yellow star which they use as their profile
0: image. Now, this yellow star that we're all obviously oh so familiar with, it's obviously the star that was forced upon Jews through the Nazi era and to have to wear that and to declare that they were Jewish, whether they liked to or not. This is because they've used that as a profile picture. And yet this worries me slightly because in times of Holocaust Memorial and other events such as that, I too have also used that as a profile picture. And it's for no other reason than just to highlight and remind people of the suffering that the Jewish community went through. It seems extraordinary that that has now been suspended, that account, if that's the reason why.
3: Yeah, the the Jude badge is, perversely, it's a badge of pride. When I see it, it, it conjures up lots of emotions in my mind about that era and, and what people that were forced to wear that had to go through. This is an extraordinary story for quite a lot of reasons. Number one, these social media giants. You try reporting these anti-Semitic accounts to these organisations, they will be slow-moving at best. I mean, like dragging their... Feet through the snow, trying to actually get them to change anything, but for some reason they've l- latched onto Nasha and and told NashaJew, which is a pro-Israel anti anti-Semitism watchdog site that does great work, that they have breached the rules by using the Yellow Jude badge. So they've completely got the wrong end of the stick, and they've since apologized for locking the account. But Nashadju have changed their logo. It's now an image of a Khmer, a Mugandavid necklace. A a very, very beautiful sign, but certainly one that they shouldn't have been made to have changed. And Twitter, as I said, got completely the wrong
0: end of the stick. And when they finally reacted, they reacted to the wrong page. Well, at least they have sort of rectified it now, we hope, maybe. Let's have a look at some of the other news, shall we? Because we've got to try and squeeze a couple more in. Brit Shalom, page 10. This is the the Jewish parents that are cutting out the bris seems quite an extraordinary headline.
2: It is. I mean, to be honest with you, the first time I'd even heard of this bris shalom thing was when I saw the page printed out yesterday. I thought, what? I really wasn't sure what this is. But apparently this is a movement that started in the States and now it's coming over to the UK and parents are getting on board with it because they don't like the idea of circumcising their young boy at eight days old, which I understand. But now, instead of having that, they're now talking about having a naming ceremony
0: instead, which is what this is. So this is a bit rich coming from someone who's a Reform Jew and obviously does bend the rules all the time. But in a nutshell, what they're saying is that they don't like the traditions that have gone on for thousands of years and now suddenly they've decided we're not going to do it.
3: Well, I mean, no father, speaking as one an ambivalent father who had a daughter first and often thought when I only had a daughter, wouldn't it be nice if I had two, then I wouldn't have to actually make this dreadful decision. And that's what it is. It's a dreadful decision. I was ambivalent at best and suddenly decided over the course of the days after he was born that this was something I had to do. And I still don't understand my decision, but I I had to do it. It was an emotional decision. No one wants to willingly cut off the little fella's little fella, but it, it happened. And this is an opportunity to do something that's just as spiritual but doesn't involve that physical practice. So, yeah, a bris shalom, a, a bris of peace, enables young Jewish boy to be welcomed into the community but without having a part of him removed in a ceremony that... I mean, it's a medical practice that goes back 4,000 years now and binds us all together. But yes, certainly, I think in in the current climate,
0: it's, it's controversial in some areas. Absolutely. Well, especially as there is such a fight going on in some countries for Jews who do wish to maintain that tradition to allow it to happen. And now if there's headlines making waves that says that Jews don't themselves want to carry on that tradition, or some Jews don't want to, it's not looking terribly promising for those who do wish to carry on traditions that have gone on for thousands of years. But OK, we could talk about that for a very long time, but we're not going to. Let's have a look at one more story and the headline that reads, Canine a Horror Pooch Crowned a Mini Celeb.
3: Yeah, we are a nation of dog lovers and a community of dog lovers. I'm a cat lover. I have a Devon Rex, a pedigree, who could actually be entered into shows, but he's too lazy and he probably wouldn't win them. So, And also they're very expensive, these cat shows. Anyway, I digress. Mini is officially dog of the year in the jewish community jbd jewish blind and disabled held a petron competition recently where they asked readers and members of the public to write in and suggest why their dog should be crowned as such and minnie who is appearing on page seven this week standing on his hind legs i should point out it's a her oh actually yeah standing on its hind legs i could probably tell actually that's a that's definitely a lady <laughs> Bit of a giveaway. Um, A beautiful one as as well, Uh, chosen by Ashley Blaker, the the hilarious Jewish comedian, who said the winner was tough to pick, but we love the way Minnie looked as she tried walking around on her hind legs. Indeed adorable. And you can enjoy the sight
0: of uh, Minnie, the winner on page seven. Okay, well, you can find out a little more about the Petron campaign as we featured it on this very programme a few weeks back. But I'm afraid that is all we've got time for for a look at the paper for this week. Thank you both very much indeed. As you've been hearing on the front page of the Jewish News this week, you will read the headline that says Schools Unite in Milestone for Jewish Education. And this is because three Jewish primary schools teaching almost 1,000 children are to link up in a new first-of-its-kind Jewish schools academy to combine learning resources and teaching expertise whilst making cost efficiencies. Well, to find out more about this we can now speak to Michael Goldstein, who is the president of the United Synagogue and he joins me now. Michael, can we just start first of all with finding out exactly how this is going to work and also tell us a bit about how the schools are standing to benefit from such an arrangement.
4: Okay, so what we have um, created is a multi-academy trust which is a legal entity which allows schools to join it. This is a, a something that the government has been encouraging for some time and the community have been talking about for some time, but we believe that this is a very positive stage because it allows us to bring schools together under one legal entity and therefore we can create, we hope, increase the, the quality of education within the school and also efficiencies.
0: Okay, so with all of that in mind then, how does this work in a practical sense? Does this mean then that the schools themselves are going to start sharing resources such as teachers and perhaps maybe plans for education? Is that the idea behind it?
4: Initially what this means is that all the schools that choose to join will become will join the one legal entity. So the various independent legal entities that currently exist which each school is operated within are collapsed into one legal entity, so the schools all join the multi-academy trust. The, the multi-academy trust will then appoint a chief executive who will then structure things so that we try and create efficiencies that will hopefully lead to increases in the quality of education and also financial efficiencies. So there's a long term, there's a long term plan here. So whilst the, the three schools that are joining are the, they are only the, we hope, the initial schools, we are hoping that there will be a considerable larger number of schools by the time, you know, four or five years comes.
0: And just to give some sort of sense of context of how structurally this is all going to work, are we talking about that the United Synagogue will continue to be, as it were, the overall governing body of the schools? In turn, you'll have this new multi-school academy beneath that, and then the individual schools will then operate themselves. Is that the kind of structure we're talking about? So
4: the United Synagogue will continue to be the foundation body. So we will have the ability The members of the trust will have the ability to appoint their trustees and the schools will be operating within that single trust. So rather than when it currently exists, the United Synagogue is able to appoint governors to each individual trust body that operates a single school. This will be a single legal entity which will operate a number of schools.
0: And does that mean the individual schools will be able to retain their identity? The idea is not going to be a case of actually all the no, schools become under one umbrella. We have umbrella. no
4: intention of of making all the schools look, you know, exactly the same. You know, I think this will develop over time, where we we really hope that schools will, you know, develop a local flavour in terms of where they particularly sit in the community. But clearly there are, and this is very early stages. There will be elements of the running of the school which could be more efficient if they were if they were centrally run but
0: i don't want to put a dampener on this but isn't the truth of it that this is almost experimenting with our next generation's education and what happens if and i hope it does work obviously i do. what happens if this doesn't work does that mean then that there's going to be an entire generation that potentially are at risk of their education not being as sound as say it is currently well, first
4: of all, this is not an experiment. This is something that the government have been pushing for for several years now. And it's something that they want. The ultimate aim from the government is that all schools will belong to a multi-academy trust. So this is not an experiment from a from a countrywide perspective, and there's an, a number of these exist in different forms. What we are doing is we're creating a central one that will cater to the, the central Orthodox community.
0: So would it be comparable to, say, the way the NHS works at the moment, where you have NHS trusts that ultimately operate under the auspices of the NHS UK, then they have trusts that operate individual hospitals No, there under won't
4: that? be local trusts. There won't be local trusts. There'll be local management boards that look after the local flavour of the school, yes, but there will only be one legal entity.
0: And as far as this coming to fruition is concerned, has this started already or when are we looking at this actually beginning?
4: We're looking at the first schools joining us from September. And just the first three schools, Morosha, Moriah and Wolfson Hillel, uh, the governing bodies have agreed to to join the the trust from September 18.
0: And just to clarify as well, you did say that the scope is there for other schools to ultimately join this trust as well. Absolutely.
4: This is not, this has not been created for the three schools. This has been created as a community-wide thing that we hope a number of schools will join.
0: And what's the long-term plan? I mean, are we talking about ultimately there's only a certain number of schools that will be able to join this? Because obviously the larger the beast, you know, the more uncontrollable it might be. Again, just trying to sort of gauge. I know this is very early days, but it's because well, we're it's... we're
4: talking a, about only a finite number of schools who will be eligible to join. It's clearly only the schools that are under the authority of the, the chief rabbi. But no, this is not something that is infinite. There is a finite number of schools who who could join us.
0: And this particular trust we're talking about, is this for primary level or will it be expanded to say the likes of JFS as well, more senior level?
4: It will be open to both. It'll be open to both primary and secondary schools. But obviously it's the first three
0: are only primary schools. And as the president of the United Synagogue, what exactly will your involvement be within this? Is it going to fall under your remit?
4: Well, we are technically involved in the appointment of the trustees And clearly, we will have an interest to ensure that it succeeds. So I don't quite yet know the day-to-day involvement that we will have. We're interested in supporting it in its early years, certainly. But we see this longer term as a single viable institution.
0: And talk about your hopes personally, because obviously I know that this is a bit pie in the sky, but obviously we are talking about the birth of something potentially quite amazing for the education system, especially in the Jewish community. What are yeah. your hopes and aspirations for this new regime, if I can call it that, to achieve? What do you want to see it achieve?
4: Look, I think there's a number of things that it could achieve. I think if we look at the last 20 or so years and the, the huge number of schools that have been created in, in the community... I see this now as a maturing of the system, as we can now really focus on really focus on quality of both secular and Jewish education. And then, longer term, you know, as the community moves, we will see schools that will need to move from one location to another location. And I think having this in a single in a single trust will will give us much greater flexibility to be able to achieve that.
0: Really is fascinating, and thank you very much indeed for telling us about it. It's Michael Goldstein, their president of the United Synagogue, talking about the new multi-school academy that has been set up in the hope that it will revolutionise the way that Jewish education is taught. Look forward to seeing what happens with that as it unfolds over the coming years. You are listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, last week, you may remember that I gave you a little bit of a tease at the end of the programme and said that we have a big announcement to make. Well, here it is. The big announcement is that come next week, The Jewish Views comes at you with a bit of a refreshed look Don't worry, we're not really going anywhere. You'll still have the same great program with equally great content and also with the guests and stories that mean something to you. However, we are going to slightly change the way that we put the program together. With that in mind, it means that you might notice a bit of a difference. One of the biggest differences will be that we are going to be saying goodbye to our schmooze section, but not to Clive Roslin or indeed to Tony, but instead it means that it will become part of the main program you'll see what I mean from next week onwards. Well, next week, we're actually, we've got a special programme from Jewish Book Week. But the week after that, you will exactly see what I am referring to. However, it does mean that today is technically speaking our last schmooze. And so for the last schmooze, Clive Rosen will be here with Tony Honigberg, but also with me and a very special guest in the form of our producer, Sue Greenberg. You've heard me thank her at the end of virtually every single programme we've ever done, but have you ever heard from her? Well, you will do today. The four of us are going to be looking back at some of our favourite schmooze discussions. That's coming up a little later on in the programme. Plus, Community Editor Diana Toman will be speaking to Dr. Raphael Zarum and Dr. Tamra Wright, about the life and work of the late Maureen Kendler, who sadly passed away last week. So her colleagues are going to be paying tribute to her. But first, when it comes to the East End of London, we all know the connection that Jews have to the East End and how, frankly, it probably wouldn't be the area that it is today had it not have been for the Jewish community that did once reside there but new photographs have come to the surface and they are the works of one David Granick. Now, David Granick passed away in the 80s, but he was a photographer. And yet another photographer by the name of Chris Dawley-Brown has stumbled across David's work and restored it so that everybody can enjoy the images that David captured. Arts editor Kate Fulton has been speaking to Chris to find out a little more about this. And she started by asking him to tell us how he first came across David Granick work?
5: Well I was invited about a year ago to look at uh, some cardboard boxes in the Tower Hamlets archive, in the Borough archive. They knew I was interested in that sort of thing, a sort of sad middle-aged men like myself like to uh, burrow through old boxes. They said well you know we've got these colour pictures, we, we haven't really got any method of looking at them, we're interested to see what they might be, would you have a look?
6: That's- I started
5: looking through them and came across the Granicks, which is forms the biggest part of the collection.
6: Right. So these and, pictures, for people uh, who uh, don't know what David Granick does or, or did, yeah. he took pictures, I understand, of, was it all of London or focused on the East End of London?
5: Just the East End and really just around the Stepney area, which was where he lived and grew up all of his life, yeah.
6: And the, the purpose of his pictures, I guess, was just to sort of focus on life as it is in the, in, in real life. People, I've fabulous ones of people sort of sitting on, um, or just standing outside the front door and half the house seems to be missing next door. Um, yeah, oddly
5: enough, that he didn't take that many pictures of people. There's, there are sort of three or four in the book that have kind of got people up front, but mostly they're just kind of empty streets, buildings, you know, architecture. He wasn't a professional photographer. He was he was an amateur. He took photos to illustrate lectures and talks that he gave to the local history society. So he's very much an amateur,
4: right. and that's
5: kind of kind of like really why I like them so much. They don't have any sort of professional aspirations to them. They're interesting because of that. I like the amateurishness.
6: Yeah. So, so you took these photos. You found. Did you sort of choose a bunch of them and decide that you wanted to adapt them somehow?
5: Yeah, there were about 2,000 of them. And as I went through them, I thought this would be an interesting time to look at these. You know, the East End's changing rapidly. You know, it's becoming almost unrecognizable. You go down a street, suddenly there's a building there that wasn't there last week. And it's, it seems to be a popular place to live. People like coming here now, and they didn't, used to be rather scared of it in the old days because uh, they thought they might get duffed up by a docker or something.
6: Stepney and around there used to be quite, um, yeah. it was quite um,
5: a sort of poor area. A lot of the East End wasn't that. I mean, it, there was there were always pockets of the East End where, you know, you had fine Georgian houses and Nazi people who were maybe, you know, the captains' houses and Huguenots. and There were a lot of really nice houses and still are down the East End. It became associated with poverty because... Most of it was mm. a <laughs> very very also, poor area. People be- used to coming in, getting off the off the boats. They were sort of it was the first port of arrival, and people stayed there and tried to get work in the docks. And there was lots of industries there, which employed manual labour. So. Yeah, it, yeah, there was a lot of poverty.
6: And it was also very much a Jewish area. A lot of the Jews who were escaping from various things that joined the uh, the Second World War, they went to Stepney and they did start out dressmaking and other things. Are there pictures of this sort of the commercial aspect?
5: The Jewish history of the East End goes back way before the 20th century, as you know. But during the first half of the 20th century, it was bit, you know, the Jewish community was kind of the dominant force of the East End culturally, I would say. Now, of course, you'd say the Bengali community would be the sort of the dominant cultural community down yeah. there.
6: Well, as we're, as we're uh, on Jewish radio, I'm going to ask you some of the, what sort of Jewish pictures are there? What's What what life has been captured?
5: Well, I, I, I think in a way, maybe Granik was taking pictures of the absence of the, the Jewish community to a certain extent, that he was Jewish himself, and I think maybe he was feeling a bit melancholic about the way the East End had sort of descended into rather a bit of a wasteland at that time after the war. The docks were about to close and it looked a bit desperate, a bit melancholic. I get the impression from the pictures that he was photographing the areas that he knew from childhood and associated with a happier time.
6: And did you see any of the religious aspects, the more the synagogues or the that the activities that used to go on around Brick Lane Market.
5: Yeah, I mean, he, did, he didn't He did photograph, you know, the Jewish community in close-up. Like, like a lot of photographs and uh, photographers have done over the years, you wouldn't be looking through the granites to get clues of ceremonies and traditions and intimate portraits of people like many other. I mean, I think that's what's good about them in the way is that they're taking a step back and showing really what the landscape was like. But very much from a jewish perspective i would say
6: yeah and they're also but, very much of a period piece I mean, looking at them yeah the, the the 60s and 70s were fabulously captured they really look they almost look like studios sort of set up like a mock-up at some yes time. yeah
5: they do they look a bit cinematic and obviously color photography or professional color photography professional standard color photography was very rare in those days even though we all had color film in our cameras you know our families for the holiday snaps and so forth the professionals didn't used to use black and white because they could control it themselves and use start so these being in color they're very unusual and it makes you appreciate how different color photography is from black and white have
6: you have you adapted them in some way have you colored them yourself or
5: no changed them
6: It's really just just brought them back into the to the, the public eye
5: yeah, the only thing I did was they because they'd gathered dust over the last 50 years, They a lot of retouching had to take place like to remove the dust and the specks. But other than that, they're very well-preserved colour transparencies.
6: And if people want to come and see them, how do they do that?
5: They should go instantly to the Bancroft Road Tower Hamlets archives, which is in Bancroft Road in Mile End. The nearest tube station is Mile End or Stepney Green there are 200 pictures there on show and a slide projection and they can also pick up a copy of the book which has been published to coincide with the exhibition which features about 100 of those pictures and very beautifully reproduced.
0: Should you get the opportunity to have a look at these images, I absolutely urge you to do so. They are really extraordinary. And as Kate was saying there, it is something out of a film set in some of them. But the images can be found if you go to a link that's on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. That was photographer Chris Dawley-Brown talking to arts editor Kate Fulton about the works that he has restored of the late David Granick to do with the east end of london you are listening to the jewish views in association with the jewish news and still to come will be our rabbinic thought for the week which comes from rabbi michael evan david of edgware mazorti synagogue and ahead of that will be our jewish schmooze now if you would like to get in contact with us not just about the subjects featured on the schmooze but any of the subjects that we do feature on the program please do feel free to contact us you can always email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media find us on facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash the jewish views or on twitter we are at jewish views uk now, Maureen Kendler is a name that was absolutely synonymous and is synonymous, quite frankly, with the world of Jewish education. Very sadly, Maureen passed away last week, rather young and very unexpectedly after a short illness, but her colleagues have been paying tribute to her at the London School of Jewish Studies, where she was most affiliated with. Community editor Diana Toman has been speaking to Rabbi Dr. Rafi Zoram and Dr. Tamra Wright, And Diana asked Rafi to start off by telling us exactly how he plans to remember Maureen.
7: Maureen was a great friend and a great teacher. And together, we've really worked hard on developing the adult education here at LSJS. She was an exhilarating teacher. People loved her classes. They became groupies of her and really appreciated the way she spoke. She was very down to earth, very real and made relevant what she was studying to the people in the class.
8: She had, I know, I've been reading that she had, she led by example, I understand. Can you expand on that a little bit?
7: Well, I think Maureen was one of us. She wasn't from a rabbinic background or a very scholarly Jewish learned background. She taught herself. She's an educated woman, studied well, and worked things out for herself. And we could relate to that. Everyone in her class felt she was a good model of what it means to be an educated person. That was on one level. On another level, she was a great role model for a lot of people, especially young women, because she was an example of a confident person who understood her faith, was excited by it, was challenged by it, occasionally frustrated by it, and was willing to ask the important challenging questions and and look for meanings and answers.
8: Tamara, would you describe her as a feminist? Oh, yes,
9: without a doubt.
8: And what are your memories of her? And what do you think her legacy will be?
9: My memories of Maureen are too many to enumerate. She was a friend and a colleague and a very inspiring person. She was also a lot of fun. And I think since she stopped working here full time, there's less laughter in the corridors. In terms of what her legacy will be, I like to think about it in two directions. And that is to say that Maureen was a very gifted educator, gifted as a performer. She was as Rafi said, exhilarating, exciting to listen to, dramatic and so forth. And she was also a really excellent mentor and teacher. So a lot of times you can have lecturers who are a great wow experience to listen to, but people don't become empowered by that. But Maureen was also able to empower people through her teaching of specific courses and through her mentoring of other educators and that was a very very powerful combination.
8: She had a multitude of skills, hasn't she? I mean I've been reading that she she helped direct the people who put on Fiddler on the Roof at Chichester. She was a broadcaster for Pause for Thought on the BBC. She must have had a a BBC voice. Would you describe her as that? Maureen definitely had a BBC voice. Did yes. She? yes. Yes. And yes. She
9: she had a great passionate love for literature, theatre, culture in general, and in her teaching of Jewish texts, she was able to draw on all of that and bring it together with each text illuminating the other in a remarkable way.
8: We do actually have a clip of Maureen when she lectured on Yiddish humour at JW3 towards
10: the end of 2016. They do translate very well because a lot of it is about inflection or word order or a certain intonation going upwards at the end of the sentence which and a shrug of the shoulders and a word a yiddish word like nu which has many many meanings and is really really hard to Damn, translate. How do
6: you translate I often write that in a text I'm thinking yeah, what am I saying yes.
10: but nu is a yiddish word that is not translated into anything but if you put nu I mean, Barbara Streisand puts new at the end of some of her more Jewish songs and everybody knows what it means. But now you're going to ask me what it means. Um, <laughs> it means, well, do we agree? Or, or, or come on then. Come on then. Or what next? So if you're saying, is X going to marry Y? New, like when's it going to happen? Or when are you going to get going? But it also means carry on
7: the story. So a word like new.
8: Would you say, Rafi, that humour was part of her makeup?
7: Yeah, it was natural. It came out of the way she taught and she brought humour out in the class. Often walking past her lecture room, you'd hear you know, giggles of laughter and joy because she, she, she brought things to life. She, she saw a funny side to things. And I think sometimes when you see the funny side, it's because you also see the dark side of things. She could bring out the humour even in the most dark books of the Bible, the book of Job, because she could see that you know, there's a comical aspect to, to this life that we live and, and could laugh at anything. For example, she was a great uh, Holocaust educator about the Shoah. And even in then, she would find ways of understanding of, of meaning, which would, which would be more m- meaningful, but sometimes would make people smile as well.
8: And she managed to do that even with such serious subjects? Absolutely. You've op- presumably heard her, Tamara, on, on these various lectures that she gave. Were you able to hear them all?
9: Well. I would share with your listeners that one of the downsides of being a Jewish educator is often that you find you're so busy with your own teaching and your own responsibilities that you don't have as much opportunity as you would like to hear from your colleagues. So with Maureen, I think I learned more from her in conversation than actually sitting in and attending
8: classes that she taught. Did you ever go on one of her tours? Apparently she did tours of Jewish London, is that right?
7: We prepared all different kinds of tours. as another way of, of educating people. So she would do those kind of things and other kinds of lectures as well. What we're very lucky is that we have a lot of recordings of Maureen's classes and her notes. And we're hoping to collate quite a few of those in some kind of way so that people can still continue to learn from her. Because I would argue she was one of the greatest educators in our community today. Measured in two ways. One in terms of the quality of what she was doing. Many great leaders, Jewish educators, were inspired by her words and thought. There was a lot of depth there. And number two, by the sheer numbers of people that wanted to come. So I'll take a little story. Often when she's speaking in a synagogue, you know, they put the, the main big rabbi in the big room and Maureen or the woman educator in a smaller room. But after a few months of this, when they began to realize that Maureen was getting the huge classes, everybody realized, let's just swap the rooms and give her the big room. Because people wanted to hear her. So I would argue probably one of the greatest in our community. We've lost a, we've lost a great.
8: Indeed, the lo- loss is going to be enormous, isn't it? And it's going to reverberate down through the years when her students can no longer hear her, presumably.
9: Well, as I said, it's a great legacy as an educator. Also, obviously, for Maureen, her legacy is about her family. She has four wonderful adult children who've all been shaped and influenced by her. So, you know, I don't want to speak on her behalf, but I think if we spoke of her only, her legacy only through the the idea of teaching and mentoring, that would, that would lose a very important aspect of who she was. She was also an incredible friend to many, many people. She had a vast correspondence that she conducted via email with friends and family around the world. She, she's left a massive hole in many, many places.
7: Mm. Students she's taught in South Africa, students she's taught in Israel, people from around the world getting together to talk about her, to, to send us messages, to send messages to her family. I mean, this, this is an incredible thing, and it's a great loss.
0: Rabbi Dr. Raphael Zarum and Dr. Tamra Wright, the colleagues of the late Maureen Kendler, paying tribute to her and speaking to Community Editor Diana Toman. there. If you would like to find out more about some of the extraordinary work that Maureen did do in her lifetime, then you can always go to jewishviews.co.uk. You are listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And this is The Jewish Schmooze, where ordinarily studio guests would join Clive Roslin to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. But seeing as the weather across the UK has meant that many are finding it somewhat difficult to get around, Clive is not actually joining us in the studio. Instead, he joins us on the line from home now. Clive, hello there and welcome to your own programme, I guess. (laughs)
11: Indeed, here we are. Well, here we are with the last schmooze. It's in fact the 120th, and I've been joined by the programme makers, Phil Dave, Sue Greenberg, and Tony Honigberg. I'm appearing on the phone, the others are in the studio, because of the terrible snow, and we're going to look back at past discussions, well, just some of them actually, And I'm going to start with one subject, the burden of being Jewish. Now, I don't actually feel it's a burden. What do you think, Sue?
12: A burden? No, I'm very proud to be Jewish. And I think I'm very proud of our history, the advent of Israel. I feel very proud to be Jewish. I don't feel any problem with that.
0: It is curious the way that it was... Treated. I remember that discussion very well. The way that it was treated, as we asked the question, "Is it a burden to be Jewish?" and where that came from, it was all about the pressure of whether or not we, as the quote chosen people, feel that pressure when we refer to ourselves as being Jewish. Yeah. Well, it is a, in in that sense. I suppose it is a, a sort of a burden,
11: but a very blessed burden, isn't it?
13: It's only it's only a burden as... I mean, I'm also proud to be Jewish, of course. There are some aspects of Jewish law which I can argue about, but we won't go into that on this discussion. But I think we carry the burden of all the hatred that comes across, that has been going, all the anti-Semitism that has been there forever. And I think that is the burden of being Jewish, rather than the burden of being Jewish, if you see what I mean. It's,
11: it's a burden, but it's also a blessing, isn't it, Tony? Because... The whole idea is that we are supposed to have been the chosen people, and it was our job to teach the rest of the world about the Almighty, and therefore it is a burden in that sense. Absolutely. Anti Semitism is part of it, isn't
13: it? It is. It's part of being Jewish. But also, you'll remember I've mentioned this so many times before that, you know, if we could come back in three thousand years time there would still be the same amount of anti-semitism around the world so you know we just learn to live with that but we have we are ha- we do teach the world don't we i mean if we take israeli technology we- and again we've spoken about that on a number of occasions on that's the- one, is- one of
11: the subjects yes indeed yeah
13: i mean that take that as an instance look what we taught the world through israeli technology now we wouldn't have done that if israel hadn't have been formed
0: well i think the, the argument could be is that it's possible that we would have done in terms of collectively there may be a group of jewish scientists who would work together somewhere whether that be in america in the uk wherever else they might have been and they could have obviously we're talking pie in the sky we don't know whether or not that would have happened well, or not.
13: It, i suppose but if th- you go back then before israel was formed you did have the what we call famous jews didn't you, you know mean the 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 freuds and the einsteins well i was going to say and they, i mean they taught I, I, the world that's the well. way
0: i'd look at it is that albert einstein never needed israel no. and i'm not getting me wrong i am immensely proud of everything that israel achieves but i don't think that we should delude ourselves to say that had israel not have come to fruition that the community wouldn't have made the same level of impact. On the other
13: hand, then, do you think that Israel needed all those famous Jewish people beforehand to be where they are today? Oh. Well, it's interesting to ask that question. It's <laughs> oh. <laughs>
11: interesting. It's very interesting to ask that question because out of that discussion comes another one that we talked about at some point during the many 120 programmes, and that is the Jews' affiliation with music Now, I personally think that music is the most important thing in the world and also is very spiritual in many senses. We talked about the Jews' tremendous tradition with music as well. Now, what do you think about that?
13: And, and of course, all the, the Jews, as we've spoken about many times, Jewish people writing music, writing in that minor key, which is, of course, Chazanot. He's written in a minor key, and, and, and the Jewish music became American popular music. You and I, Clive, have spoken about the Cole Porter one, which I think was Night and Day, wasn't it? It was his his hit that he wrote when he suddenly realized he's writing like a Jew. So, you know, so and, and music brings people together, of course.
0: You know, the other thing as well, though, is to look at it, and this never, I don't think this really came up in that particular discussion, was that. Music is so instrumental to the actual shul services as well and although we were focusing quite a lot on secular music and the impact that Jews made into mainstream society when it came to music I believe that it's so fundamental to us as a religion as well that for me I can't deny that it's one of the reasons why I attend shul so often is I love the music. Mm.
12: So I agree with that. I love going to shul for that reason. I love joining in with the music. That's the one thing I really enjoy about going to shul more than anything else. But I think we have to be very proud of the Jewish contribution generally to music, medicine, technology and particularly in Israel. They're at the forefront of science and technology
11: when you think about all the all the Jews in the world of music, and the world of classical music, it is quite, quite amazing. It's astounding. Some of the great, great interpretations of music. Yehudi Menuhin, Fritz Kreisler, one could go on forever about
0: them all. And one of the other things that came out of that particular discussion and many other discussions that we've had before on the schmooze over the years is that we've asked, how is it possible that such a Pro rata, small community yes. makes such a massive impact. Yes. Yes. Something Adds more like proportion or, to the contribution.
13: Like a, about point zero one percent of the population a, we make up, don't we? And uh, but out of that zero one point one percent or whatever it is, we contribute something massive. I,
12: I think yes. I don't know whether proportionally what the it's, a, it's uh, the contribution is massive yeah. compared with the small numbers yeah. of.
0: I mean, I don't know what you think, Clive, but to me it almost feels as if we are trying to justify our existence somehow. That's what it comes across to me. That's why we work that bit harder and almost try and make our mark in the world just to show that we aren't necessarily how some people portray us to be. Would you agree with that?
11: Yes, I agree with that entirely. And that leads me on to your very point. This is another discussion we have, which was religion, what's
0: the point? And the point is just that what you've just said well religion what is the point that's a very strong question
13: certainly with jewish religion i think you phyllis hit that on the head we do work harder but do we work harder to be recognized or do we work harder to survive
11: we work harder to survive
0: don't you think there could be an element of both though it's almost a case of that we are so worried how other people are going to perceive us that equally at the same time, we we work hard because we have a very strong work ethic. I think that it is inherent in all of us that we're always taught from the word go, work hard, earn your place in society, right. you must make an impact. And we're
12: people of the book, they say. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So yes. I, I
0: think there could be an element of That's both right. the points that you raise there. I don't think it's just because we want to repair the world to alarm, which we are supposed to do but i also believe that we are worried that if we don't do it what are people going to make of us and heaven forbid a million times over would we ever slip back to pre-1930s germany
13: w- well what do they make of us now whatever we've done as i go back in a few minutes ago whatever we've done we still suffer anti-semitism we, whether we do things right or whether we don't do things right can't, can't we can't win. do it can't do can't it right win. can't not do it right you know.
11: Yes, that's absolutely true. And that leads us on to another thing that we discussed, which was the burden of being Jewish, which we began with. That is, again, part of
0: the burden, Mm. isn't it? Absolutely. yeah. It's true, actually, I suppose. It's just the weight of knowing that anything that one does could make a difference in someone who's not Jewish's eyes to what they think of the Jewish community as a whole, and by which case there is a massive burden associated with that.
11: And there's another burden as well, which is another thing that we discussed, was keeping the Holocaust alive.
0: That's come up several times, hasn't it, really? And I suppose there's a reason that's come up so many times is because of the importance of it. And if you think about the time when we started, let's go back even further before the Jewish views to Sunday Jewish Radio. So those who've listened for a long time, they may remember that name. But if we go back to the Sunday Jewish Radio days and how many times it came up on that programme, and now with the Jewish views, it's come up at least three times. I think it's four times over the last two and a bit years. It's
13: something, I think, that we have to keep alive so people know what went on absolutely. and what happened, it hasn't stopped any further disasters around the world. But if we hadn't kept it alive, how many more disasters around the world would there have been?
0: By disasters, and are you referring to, say, more genocide? genocide. Mm.
12: And I think education is very important <laughs> in schools so that children grow up knowing about mm. the Holocaust, what happens. Yeah. But absolutely. by comparison
0: um, to when we started the discussions, the point I was going to make is in that time... We've now seen the centenary of the Balfour Declaration. We now know that there is going to be a permanent memorial and Holocaust education centre outside the Palace of Westminster. It does feel as if now more than ever that actually Holocaust education is more prevalent than it ever was. So potentially I would like to sort of think that our programme has played Mm. our part in trying to help keep the memory alive.
13: And let's hope that going forward that may because of education may stop any more genocide happening.
11: Well, yes, you're right. And that brings us on to another thing we discussed, which I think has an interesting aspect to it as well, which is Jewish humor and what makes a good Jewish comedian because we've been talking about very serious (laughs) matters. We have. But why is it that there are so many brilliant Jewish comedians? I think
13: think that's someone that can laugh at themselves. And uh, we know what our downfalls are. We can look at ourselves I mean, even if you take lots of things that we do that are correct in doing, because that's what it's taught us in the Torah, when you break it down, some of the things are quite funny. And I think Jewish people can laugh at themselves and laugh at their religion. And, and Rabbonim laugh at some of the things that we do in our religion, don't they? And
12: does humour come out of repression and suffering?
13: Oh, 100%. I think, I, And how we've kept our humour through all that suffering... I was going to say, God only knows. And maybe he does. (laughs) (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Sense of of humour again, you see.
0: But I think that the the biggest difference is that we are quite a funny people. Mm. If you actually look at some of the traditions that we're taught and... Really, there are some things that we, even we should question. Never mind other people. What on earth exactly does "papa per" mean? I know you well well. <laughs> I know. I know you're spitting away the devil. It's one of those things that just does not translate. But we need to be realistic about yeah. this. It to anyone else, it does sound slightly bonkers. Yeah, it's funny. But it is slightly peculiar as well. So we are just generally quite a funny, amusing Well, equal. we are, aren't we? And,
13: and if you take lots of festivals, I mean, we've got Purim coming up this week, you know, and we're eating Haman's hat, aren't we? You know, yeah. the, oh, is that what well, Hamantaschen, no, yeah. Hamantaschen is? No,
12: Hamantaschen is Hayman's ears. His ears. ears. I, heard two, I
13: heard two of the two sayings, you see. So, we're, so why are we eating Haman's ears? I don't know,
0: because he can't listen to this programme. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs>
12: I think Hammond Tashin is very overrated.
0: I'd oh, say. I quite like it, but it's then revolting. it's sweet. Yeah. Sorry, that's, that's, that's another romantic.
12: discussion.
13: It's horrible. <laughs> Here, there we, go. we must have a sense of humour then, mustn't we?
11: That's a very good point, I suppose, to which to bring this discussion to an end, or this final schmooze, which um, I've loved. I hope that you have all loved it. I'm oh, sure you have. have and I'm sh- yeah. I hope most of our, our listeners have as well.
0: Yes, I'm of course, sad to still- see it end. Well, Clive, can, can I just throw in at this stage here? Because it's very important to let people realise that just in case anyone hasn't heard all 120 schmoozes <laughs> that have taken place on this programme, <laughs> that you have been a part of at least 110 of them. There's very rarely yeah. has there been a week that you've not shown utter loyalty and dedication to the schmooze. And there is absolutely no way it would have been the feature it is without you so we salute you I I think
13: we also ought to say that that although the schmooze is not going to be there the programme the Jewish views is still going to be there it's just going to be in a different format
0: as is Clive Clive make no mistake we'll see you next week you're you're not going anywhere
13: (laughs) 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 absolutely well
11: thank you very much indeed And uh, I look forward to the next program, which will be still discussing all sorts of things, no doubt.
0: Indeed, we will. But in true Shmoo's tradition, it is time now to conclude it with our rabbinic thought for the week. And this week it comes from Rabbi Michael Evan David from Edgware Mazorti Synagogue.
14: Purim is a very particular holiday. God's name is not mentioned anyway in the Megillah. Actually, The world of the Megillah looks very much like ours, where we don't see God openly acting in the world, where we can doubt his existence because we don't have any physical proof. In that case, why it is considered a religious holiday. The rabbis in the Talmud spoke about that. They gave to the Megillah a big religious importance. It is told in the Talmud of a discussion between the rabbis about the giving of the Torah at Sinai, when God was, of course, very much present. Rabbi Avdimi said, The Holy Blessed One overturned the mountain above the Israelites like a washtub and said to them, If you accept the Torah, excellent, and if not, this will be your grave. It looks like the Torah was forced on us, against our will. So why should we follow it? And indeed, Rav Acha said in the continuation of the discussion in the Talmud, this is a basis for a serious objection against the binding nature of the Torah. You can't make a pact, a covenant, by force, by coercion. It will be another rabbi called Rava who will give an answer to this by claiming, despite this, the generation of Jews in the time of King Kahashverosh accepted it willingly. As the Megillah says, the Jews established it and took it upon themselves. This means that they established and confirmed what they have previously taken upon themselves at Sinai. According to Rava, it was after salvation from Haman that the Jews accepted willingly what was first forced upon them. It looks that when God was performing all those fancy miracles, the plagues, the splitting of the sea, giving the Torah with thunder, in that situation, the Torah could not be properly accepted. People weren't really free to make a choice. Only when the world is normal, like the one in the Megillah, like the one we live in, only then we can really accept the Torah freely. Living a life of Torah in our time, when the face of God is hidden, that's a real challenge, but has real worth. The active act of seeking God's face is what challenges us, what enables us to live meaningful lives.
0: Thank you very much indeed to Rabbi Michael Evan David from Edgware Masorti Synagogue with our Thought for the Week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thank you very much to all of our guests. To Michael Goldstein, President of the United Synagogue, telling us about the new three London primary schools forming a Jewish schools academy. Thank you to Chris Dawley-Brown, the photographer talking about the works of the late David Granick, another photographer who's captured the East End of London. And also to Rabbi Dr. Raphael Zaram... And to Dr Tamara Wright, who were remembering with much fondness the work and life of their colleague Maureen Kendler. Thanks to all of our other contributors and, of course, to you at home for listening. Don't forget that, as I mentioned, next week The Jewish Views comes to you with a bit of a new look and a new feel, but yet strangely familiar at the same time. So don't worry too much. We will still see you, hopefully, same time next week with a more improved programme. But I do hope you will join us then. Don't forget that you can always go to Jewish Views to listen to the most recent episode of The Jewish Views and you can also listen to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.